0: You'll always
1: come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged.
2: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
3: Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radio Lab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get podcasts.
4: I talked to my doctor a long time ago and said, look, can we agree that BMI is bullshit? And she said, yes.
2: The number one gold star, like badge of honor is going into a clothing store that has clothes you could never fit before and putting on a 2X and having it fit.
4: You know, when you gain the weight, you get older, things get harder. I approached 40 with a knee that was going to need a knee replacement within five to 10 years, a blood glucose that was...
2: Just above what's considered normal range. A blood pressure that was a little high. Imagine a mountain. If losing weight is climbing the mountain and gaining weight is coming back down, I've gone up the mountain, I've come down the mountain. I've never reached the summit.
0: It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. Welcome to the show, and welcome to 2024. The voices you just heard are from episodes of the podcast, Wait For It, hosted by Ronald Young Jr. That's weight as in body weight. It's a show that, quote, unpacks the nuanced thoughts of fat folks and folks who think about their weight all the time. So, you know, that means it's a show for most of us, particularly at this time of year. We'll hear from Ronald later this hour, but we're going to begin our conversation this week with a physician, because any conversation about body weight these days unavoidably means talking about Ozempic. The drug became a social media buzzword last year as high-profile celebrities began turning to the medication for its fast results in their efforts to lose weight. But it was initially approved by the FDA to treat type 2 diabetes way back in 2017, It wasn't until this past year that the medication, which is made by the Danish healthcare company Novo Nordisk, became a sort of catch-all phrase. It's now synonymous with a new class of drugs. They include Wagovi, which is also from Novo Nordisk, as well as Monjaro and Zepbown, both from the pharmaceutical company Eli Lilly. So The newfound popularity of these drugs as tools for weight loss has caused demand to skyrocket to the point where there have now been supply shortages. So on the one hand, this all sounds like the makings of yet another body-shaming craze. But here's the thing. Roughly 42% of people in the United States have obesity. That number goes up when we're talking specifically about Black and Hispanic people. And illnesses associated with obesity, such as heart disease and diabetes, they have long been among the leading causes of death in this country. So these drugs are potentially game-changing for our collective health. Some in the medical community even believe their efficacy could eliminate obesity altogether. To begin pulling all of this apart, we have invited Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford to take our questions. Dr. Stanford is an obesity medicine physician and scientist, an associate professor of medicine and pediatrics at Massachusetts General Hospital, and just one of the preeminent scholars in this field. And Dr. Stanford, welcome to Notes from America. Thanks for so much for joining us.
4: Thanks so much for having me. It's a delight to be here with you this evening.
0: And listeners, we want to hear from you all hour. We can take your questions about the prescription weight loss drugs themselves. But also, I'm wondering if and how all the talk about these drugs has caused you to think differently about your own body or your health. Okay, Dr. Stanford, first, let us level set a bit. 2013, the American Medical Association recognized obesity as a disease. You have specified further that obesity is a disease of the brain. Can you just break mm-hmm. that idea down for us?
4: Absolutely. And actually, you know, Kai, I was actually the doctor that went to speak to the AMA right before that pivotal vote that the AMA acknowledged obesity as a disease. So let's let's break this down. Why is a disease? Um. So when we think about weight and weight regulation, it actually happens in the brain, and a lot of people don't know that to be the case. So there is a portion of our brain all in the hypothalamus. You don't have to necessarily look this up, but I would welcome you to do so if you'd like. But in the hypothalamus, there is a part of our brain, what we call the anorexigenic, and when we hear anorexigenic, we have a part of our brain that tells us not to eat a lot. Um, it's called the Palm C or the Proopium melanocortin portion of our brain. This is the part of our brain that tells us not to eat a lot. And some of mm-hmm. us have this augmented in our brain. And if, for those of us that have that augmented in our brain, we just don't have a really strong desire to eat a lot. Okay. Mm. So that's that's one part of our brain, the anorexogenic mm-hmm. or the Palm C portion of our brain. And then there's another part of our brain that you can imagine if there's an anorexigenic portion of our brain, we also have an orexigenic part of our brain. So anorexigenic o is the opposite mm-hmm. of anorexigenic. o mm-hmm. is the AGRP or the agouti-related peptide pathway part of our brain. This pathway does the opposite of the anorexigenic pathway. And guess what that does? It tells us to eat more. Okay, so some of us have this augmented. Now, believe it or not, um, and let there me just, are- Let
0: me just jump in real quick to make sure none okay, of that got, got past people too fast. That Yeah. To, to br- part of our brain tells us when to eat more part of our tells brain tells us when not to eat more exactly right okay
4: but this is also influenced by our gut so there're this brain gut gut you know our stomach our intestines they all act together and some of us have this stimulated in such a way that our bodies do this really well and tell us to do this kind of in a way where our bodies function such that we may appear more lean Mm -hmm. And some of us have it where it doesn't function as well. And we may appear to carry more excess adipose or fat. Does Mm -hmm. that make sense?
0: That does make sense. And so, which is to say, the interplay between our brain and our guts really determines our desire to eat. Is desire the right word?
4: Is desire, some of it is not only desire, some of it is even how our body even decides whether or not it wants to store that mm-hmm. or not. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. some of it's, you know, a lot of this is outside of our control, right? Like I can't tell my brain, hey, signal down that pathway, right? Like, right. I would love to do that. And so when we talk about kind of some of the meds you talked about at the outset, a lot of the the meds are kind of influencing that. But you know, when you talk about these category of medications, this Ozempic, Manjaro, Zetbound, etc., this type of medicine, what we call GLP1s or glucagon like peptide ones, believe it or not, that type of substance is made in our bodies. Some of our bodies just make more of it than other people's bodies. And so when we're administering this to a person, some of we're giving those people that may not have as much of it as baseline mm-hmm. more of it so that their bodies can function more like those of us that may have more of it at baseline. Does and that so make that's, sense?
0: Yeah, so that's the one one of these drugs is that if you, if your body, if the interaction between your brain and your stomach doesn't, and your gut cues you to eat more um, or to store fat differently, this right. enzyme is what gets in the way of that um, or helps. It could be, it that.
4: could be one of them. There's a lot one more to the one story. I mean, we could spend like hours talking about it, but we, but we this, will not this do that. Be,
0: Cause, we, cause yeah. we can't all take this, that in. This but. might
4: be more, this might be one of those things. And so for some people, when they go on these medications, they're like, Oh my goodness, is this what other people feel? Mm-hmm. I never knew what this was like because right, I never right. felt that whatever that is. And so that may be what some people feel, but they never knew what that was like because Mm -hmm. they never had that sensation, whatever that might have been, for example.
0: Going back to the idea of obesity being a disease in the first place, Mm -hmm. why is that framework important? You said you were the one amongst people who went to the AMA and said, hey, let's think about it this way. Why was that an important framework?
4: Well, you know, when we think about other chronic disease processes, let's think about some key ones that we think about, particularly as you, you know, kind of at the outset, you brought up this differentiation between black and brown communities, ones Mm -hmm. like I belong to, ones like you belong to. Mm -hmm. Um, We think about this disproportionate impact of disease processes like type 2 diabetes or high blood pressure um, on these communities. Well, at the outset, we have to recognize that the one that actually has the largest impact on these communities is obesity and obesity happens to be a precursor to these diseases like type 2 diabetes or like heart disease or like high blood pressure Mm -hmm. and with it being a precursor to these disease processes often we're treating the cause and not the disease that caused those diseases at Mm -hmm. the beginning and so what we're doing is we're like oh let's go and treat all of the downstream impacts without treating the precursor or the origin story for for lack Mm of a better way of saying it and so As an obesity medicine physician, what I really get my true joy out of doing when I'm working with either my pediatric or my adult or older adult patients is when I treat the disease that is their obesity, guess what I get to do, Kai? I get to begin deleting all of those downstream diagnoses that we just talked Uh about. Uh I might get to delete that type 2 diabetes or their high blood pressure or their sleep apnea or their fatty liver disease, all of these things that if we had just treated their obesity to begin with, we could have began deleting those much sooner. And so by recognizing obesity as the precursor to the 230 plus diseases that obesity does cause, then we began to recognize that as the precursor to those disease processes, and then actually began treating the root cause of the issue. Why why was that a
0: Big idea in the first place. I mean, I, I mean, it, I guess on the back end of it, it seems like okay, yeah, that's that's self-evident. That um, but why why do you think that hasn't been a self-evident idea in medicine prior to well, 2013? Well, I think that you
4: know, I think that when we think about obesity, um, it, it's unfortunate that unlike other disease processes, it's a disease that you wear, and it, because it's a disease that you wear, with it comes significant stigma and bias that we don't have that we have with other diseases you can't look at a person until they have high blood pressure you can't look at a person until they have cancer you can't tell if they have um you know hypertension you can't tell these things by looking at an individual but because someone has excess weight you presume that they are lazy that they don't care about themselves you have all of these preconceived notions about their value or their worth much like if you look at me as a Black woman, you make these assumptions about who I am, my value, my worth, my ability to carry out a task or whatever it might be because of whatever your preconceived notions are about what you've been told about Black women. Um, and so with these notions that we bring to the table about persons that carry excess weight, I then have to make sure that you understand that this is a disease processes that's in the body that's governed by genetics, development, environment, behavior, the interplay of these things that happens to be expressed externally to get people to understand that our bias towards those that Mm -hmm. carry excess weight governs how we care or don't care for those individuals. And I would say don't care is probably really the key thing.
0: We're going to need to take a break. Dr. Fatima Cody-Stamford is an obesity medicine physician, and she is talking to us about Ozempic and the new uh, weight loss drugs. We're going to continue this conversation after break, and we're going to start taking your calls. I'm Kai Wright. This is Notes from America. Stay with us. We often think of universities as isolated ivory towers, but the fact is, politics have always been present on campus. This is Kai, and after you're done with our show this week, take a listen to the New Yorker Radio Hour, where David Rimnick looks closely at what's been happening at Harvard.
2: The money factor, very important. What is it that college presidents do? One of their most important functions is raising money.
0: Law professor Randall Kennedy. He's worth a listen, and so is the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you get your podcasts. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. And shout out to our new listeners in Los Angeles and North Carolina this week. We are so excited to have LAist and WUNC join our community. And we can't wait to have your voices in the conversation. I'm talking with Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford about medications designed to treat obesity and why some in the medical community think this will lead to a total transformation of our nation's health. And Dr. Stanford, just to kind of put our feet on the ground a little bit more about the drugs themselves before we get into all the conversations that come from that. Okay. For these, as a doctor, at what point would you prescribe them to someone? I'm assuming that you wouldn't turn to a weight loss medication as a first option, but give us sort of the brief overview of like, if you're somebody who's thinking about this, what is the point a doctor might say, this is for you?
4: Yeah, well, for, for by the time people um make it to Mekai, i often they have tried diet number 74. Um, and so um they are, you know, have tried many things, diet programs, exercise programs. They've really tried, and unfortunately, I wouldn't say that they have failed the diet programs or the diet, I would say the diet programs have often failed them. Um, and they may have tried many exercise programs and they've really put in valiant efforts. Um, And they've really come to the end of the rope. Um, Maybe they've even tried metabolic and bariatric surgery and have had weight regain. And so they're coming in after tried and um, these things have not been effective for them. Um, And so they have, um, I wouldn't start here, um, but after they have tried diet modifications, lifestyle modifications, stress modifications, sleep modifications, all of these things, um, this is when we would consider um, medications. And the reason why I think it's important for us to think about these modifications, because when we consider a medication for the treatment of the disease that is obesity, if they are effective, and notice I'm saying if they are effective Mm -hmm. because they aren't effective for everyone, if they are effective, they are a lifelong commitment to these medications. These medications do work on the pathways that regulate weight. But if they are effective, as soon as we no longer utilize them, meaning if we're no longer taking them, they are no longer going to be effective because we're no longer using them. So if we are going to use them, if they are effective, we will need to use them long term. So this is what we need to make sure we are very right. um transparent about at the outset. So I just want to make sure that we're aware of that before we endeavor down that pathway. And that's what I'm very transparent about with my patients, if we do go down that pathway.
0: Uh, Let's go to Sonia in Union City, New Jersey, who has a question about the meds. Sonia, welcome to the show.
1: Yes. Hi. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm just going to call doctor, the doctor, Dr. Fatima. I forgot her
0: last
4: name. That's <laughs> Dr. fine. I, I go by that on social um, media. So that's, that's, that's fine too. Oh. And I'm, I mean, you said it and you said okay, Fatima, great. right. So you, you get gold stars I'm all around. Doing better than me. <laughs> well, thank you. It's, it's called phonics. <laughs> 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 so listen, um, Phonic. First of all,
1: it's refreshing to hear that you're an African-American doctor. I'm an African-American woman. I'm 64.
4: Mm-hmm. I,
1: I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes in 96 because I did have um, adult onset diabetes from being obese most of my life. Well, not my life, most of my adult life, and they were stress factors. Anyway, I won't do a deep dive, but what I wanted to say is I, you've echoed everything I went through. I went to a food psychologist, yada, yada, yada. So I pretty much been managing my type 2 diabetes very well over the years. And I've actually, at my heaviest, I was 252. I'm actually 152 now. And a lot of it I can't take credit for. It's because I've had seven surgeries on my left leg that stemmed from an initial total knee replacement. And I want people listening, especially your clients, your you, you know your patients, to understand that diabetes is not something to be dismissed. I was in the hospital an entire month this past July because even though I managed my blood sugars well, I had two strains of bacterial infection in my leg. And even though I'm 152, it still happens. But my point of the call is... I empathize with people that have weight struggles because I'm one of those people, but I've overcome it. But my issue now is my doctor has prescribed Ozempic for me since I got out of the hospital in July. I have not been able to to get my prescriptions filled on a regular basis because of the high demand. Mm -hmm. And I'm not calling to complain, but... Yeah it's been an issue for me because being in the hospital for a month, I don't want that to happen again. Mm-hmm. And so I can't even get my medication, the Ozempic, and it was prescribed for me to maintain my blood sugar.
0: Sonia, I'm going to stop you there just for time um, because we've got a lot to get to. And uh, Dr. Stanford, not being able to get medications right now because of the... Yeah. the how often are you hearing this? You're, you're nodding this vigorously.
4: This is the... The nightmare that is my daily life. Um, these medication shortages are real. Um, even for myself, and uh, you know, I'm a very well-sought-after doctor. I can get medications um probably better than most docs um, in the field, and I still have this issue with my patients every single day. So, Sonia, I hear you. Um, what I would recommend, however, is that um Eli Lilly's drugs have now um come on the market. Uh, Manjaro and Zepbow. Manjaro is the trade name for the medication for patients with type 2 diabetes. Slightly better availability than Ozempic. Um, so, that medication, which is a dual agonist, a combination of a GLP1 and a GIP, you may have better likelihood of getting it. It is a US based company. Um, so, just a little bit better availability with that being um, the case not saying it's great availability. Notice I'm saying slightly better availability. So you might want to talk with your doctor about seeing if that's available somewhere in your um, area. This is a major issue. The supply chain issue has been a major issue. And this started in 2021. Um, It it worsened in 2022. And um, I'm hoping that in 2024, where we are now, I will start to see this improve. I do agree that this is a major issue. One thing that may help some of the supply chain issues is that the generic medication, which is Victoza, the daily injection um, will become um, become generic this year, meaning it will become an agent that is available more broadly, more wide scale because it will become come off patent this year. And so I right. think that will help p- improve some of the supply chain issues. Um, and so look out for that, Sonia, when that becomes available. It's not yet available. We just are on January 7th, so we're still early in the year. But um, be on the lookout for that to help with some of the supply chain issues. In the meantime, look for Manjaro potentially for helping with some of the supply chain issues. And I apologize, Um on behalf of the supply chain, which is the bane of my existence with my patients also.
0: So so more drugs to come, you got to look beyond Ozempic um, might be helpful. I want to pivot a little bit and bring in our second guest um, at, to talk about uh, the broader conversation here around body and weight. I want to bring in Ronald Young Jr. He's the host of the podcast, Wait For It, in which he unpacks, and I quote, the nuanced thoughts of fat folks. He talks about his own journey with weight, weight loss, and acceptance, with candor and grace and humor. And I'm so happy, Ronald, that you could join us today. Welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having me, Kai. It's good to be here.
0: So uh, just to back up from all of this sort of medical talk, um, which is very important, um, but to talk about how this all is landing in the culture. In December, Oprah Winfrey publicly announced that she is using weight loss medication, uh, without stating a specific name. And in an interview with People Magazine, she said, quote, the fact that there's a medically approved prescription for managing weight and staying healthier in my lifetime feels like relief, like redemption, like a gift. Oprah was certainly not the first celebrity to talk about using these drugs, but she is arguably the most influential. And Ronald, I, you know, there's so much to talk about with someone like Oprah and bodies. but it, what, if anything, to you does it mean for this person, this arguably one of the most powerful Black women in America, specifically to share this news at this
2: moment. Man, Kai, I, I, I just, I, I mean, it's tough. It's tough to hear, honestly, because, mm-hmm. I mean, even from the, the first half of this conversation to now, I think what I'm grappling with is kind of this idea of obesity as a disease, which I understand how it's like technically fit in there. And I understand the ways in which we're talking about health and wanting people to be healthy. But I I can't help but feel a sense of some sort of danger or harm towards fat folks when we're equating health so closely to being thin uh, in this very specific way. It just feels like in this instance, the Mm -hmm. way that we're talking about what health is and what that means Uh, to be healthy is, is so closely attached to not being fat that it, Especially in this moment when we're talking about GLP-1 drugs, it feels tough for fat people to be able to walk down the street, and I've had friends tell me this, without now someone questioning whether they care about their health enough to take a GLP-1 drug. And to have somebody like Oprah come along and say, well, I'm working on my health, so I'm taking GLP-1 drugs, It to me, it just feels like the type of ammunition for a battle that I never asked mm. to be a part of.
0: Mm, mm so how how would you reframe it when people um begin talking about these drugs? Um, uh, and we and I think we want to get into the whole push and pull around health and weight and all of that. But how would you reframe it when people begin talking about these drugs? Um, how 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 do you invite people to think about it?
2: I mean, I think for me when i when I have a conversation with my doctor, I have a conversation with my doctor about the actual problems that I'm having. Doc, I have high blood pressure. Uh, and then my doctor says, Well, let's talk about like what you're doing. Are you walking? Are you how much water are you drinking? What types of things are you eating? All of those questions, right? Like, I feel like I've been in conversations with doctors where it's been like, well, obviously you have high blood pressure. You are fat. I am also black, and my dad, who is much smaller than I am, would not be classified overweight at all. He also has high blood pressure. And I've had people even acknowledge the fact that black men typically have high blood pressure, whether they're fat or not. So I think, one, we need to start looking at the actual health problems and say, what can we do to fix this? Now, I know we're talking about something being upstream, which is the obesity being the cause of these other factors. But I think it's it's one thing to talk about this scientifically and medically and oh. listen to the actual facts that are being said in front of me. And then think about how this is like actually received by people out there who just hear these fat folks need to be on GLP-1 drugs in order to actually get control of their health. So, to be honest, Kai, I don't even think I gave you a satisfactory answer because I don't know how to reframe it. I just know that there's a danger of always equating health to thinness, uh, and I think we have to start moving away from that.
0: Mm-hmm. I want to talk about some of the things that you get to in your podcast, but I, but yeah, but just so that we can sort of get on the same page in this conversation, Doctor Stanford. Um, what do you hear when you, when, when you hear Ronald saying that um, the idea of naming obesity as the disease, which is, the, uh, to your mind, an important medical development, he hears it as, um, well, I don't want to put words in his mouth. He's just explained how he hears it. Um, how, how, do you, how do you think about that as a
4: doctor? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with a lack of knowledge about the disease process, a lack of understanding of of how the brain regulates weight, how the brain is interacting with the rest of the body and a lack of understanding of even these medications and how they actually impact all-cause mortality. What we know about GLP-1s, right? They've been around for 19 years is that What we can see from studies, I'm a physician scientist, right? I publish studies on on medications, on surgeries, et cetera, is from data from around the world. We know that these medications reduce major adverse coronary events. We know they reduce the risk for heart attacks. They reduce the risk for strokes. They reduce the, the risk for death from any cause. We know they reduce the risk for heart failure emissions. We know they reduce the risk of kidney disease. So if we know they reduce the risk of these issues, and if we know they reduce the risk in populations at large, then I'm not looking at these as necessarily deleterious to someone's health when I have meta-analyses that support the scientific facts that are. Let me, let me stop you there. I'm looking at the scientific data to support my information and also looking at what I see in patient after patient, having treated over 10,000 patients with GLP ones in my career. So but that's, that's what I mean, I'm using. Because we're getting short in
0: time for this segment. I just want to stop yeah. you there because I, I don't want all the sort of medicine of it to go past yeah. people. And, and I, and I, and I wonder how do we have a conversation um, in our society where we are able to do both and, where we're able to both deal with the um, very real consequences of um, diseases like diabetes and heart disease. Uh, I am somebody who has buried a lot of people in my family um, Mm -hmm. uh, from early deaths associated with those diseases. Um, that for them was associated with di- with with obesity. How do we have a conversation about that without also having a conversation that further uh, creates shame and uh, uh, and tells people they have to look a certain way?
4: Um, well, the thing is, is that one thing I never said, and I think that this is where we we get into the issue is I never said anything about thinness. I never said anything about the number on the scale. I think that people equate obesity to the number on the scale because that's unfortunately how doctors approach them regarding this. I never have ever, and you can ask any patient that I've ever treated for the disease of obesity, have given them a target number that they need to get to, a target BMI. I've so which never is to say
0: that. one thing is that we need to stop talking about yeah. Numbers and talk about healthcare, which is what I hear you to saying as well. Talk about the
4: health of the individual. So What's when wrong I'm is what I hear you.
0: you saying as well, right? right exactly. That, um, uh, that you you don't you don't want to have a healthcare conversation that's about somebody's physical size.
4: Exactly. I talk about the health, and actually, my patients that have been with me usually an average of ten years. When they then after even being with me for ten years say, "Hey, doc, well, what number am I supposed to get to?" And I look at them. And I say, wait a minute, we've been together for a decade or 12 years or 15 years. Have I ever given you an actual number? And they say, well, no. I said, well, why are we going to do that now? I said, so how is your blood pressure? Oh, it's great, doc. How is your blood sugar? Oh, it's looking good. How are those liver function tests looking? Oh, it's fabulous. How's that hemoglobin A1C looking? Oh, it's great. So are you healthy? Yes. So is that number important? No. All right. I think we're doing so, good. And I think if we can have that conversation, then we are, we can get on the same page together.
0: So we're going to have to take a break, but I, w- I when I come back, I want to come back to you, Ronald, because I have a lot of stuff I want to talk to you about uh, that you talk about in your podcast in terms of how these questions show up in our culture and have showed up in your life um, as we can see, it is it, it gets complicated really fast um, when we try to, to do too much at once. Um, so I'm talking with Dr. Fatima Cody-Stamford, an obesity physician at Massachusetts General Hospital And when we come back, we're going to hear a lot more from Ronald Young Jr., who is host of the podcast, Wait For It. And we want to get to your calls if you have questions about the drugs, but also if you want to chime in on what Ronald is bringing to the table about how all of this, these conversations about health and obesity quickly and dangerously slip into a conversation that that shames people for their size. I'm Kai Wright. Stay with us. Welcome back. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. I'm joined by Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford, an obesity medicine physician-scientist, and by Ronald Young Jr., host of the podcast Wait For It, as in body weight. We're talking about new medications that treat obesity and that could very well be a stepping stone to eliminating obesity, eliminating the disease altogether. But also, we need to talk about how this conversation around obesity goes off the rails and contributes to shame and stigma around people's body size. Ronald, just to back up and talk about your own experience a bit and, what, and, and the stuff you share in, in your podcast, uh, it, it, you discuss this notion of waiting for the perfect moment, that, that life won't begin until you lose a certain amount of weight.
2: Tell me about that idea and, and how that's shaped your experience. It feels like generally a lot when we talk about the ways in which uh, we live life, a lot of what is covered is looking and being a certain way. Uh, And a lot of that has to do with what we look like, how attractive we are, and in some cases, how small we are. And it seems like with a lot of the messaging that we get in movies, music, television, uh, what have you, it's this idea that once everything falls into direct alignment, that everything that you want will begin to happen for you. So you get the right education, you get the right job, and if you look a certain way, it's much easier for you to find that alignment um, than it is for others. And in a lot of ways, I feel like regardless of whether we explicitly state that or not, um, it feels like the message that especially a lot of fat folk get fat folks get is that your life doesn't start until you hit a certain size or until you look a certain way. And in a lot of ways it's just feel it's felt like I've been waiting, W A I T waiting, um, mm. for that to happen.
5: Mm.
0: And for you, what has been the process for unwaiting, I guess? <laughs> uh you know for for particularly in a moment like this again where we've been through a year where the culture it's just i mean where where weight loss drugs are the buzzword of 2023 um what what has been the process for drowning that out
2: i mean you really can't you know what i mean like there's no there there's no way to really force it out of your mind uh because it's it's always there you know i can't really I don't think I've ever like turned on the television, watched anything without having some sort of thought about my body uh, come up as a part of the conversation. And when I say that, I mean, as a part of the conversation, or as part of the thoughts that I'm thinking in my head, like you can't watch a movie, or there was a uh, the young man from The Bear uh, is, he just did a photo shoot, I believe, for Calvin Klein, and it's been all over Instagram. I'm forgetting, I'm blanking on his name, I'm sorry. But <laughs> uh, yesterday, during the week on Instagram, everyone was going crazy on his pic for his pictures, and I remember looking and being like, man, that dude is ripped. And that was <laughs> the, the one thing that I get is looking at this dude who's like terribly in shape and saying, I couldn't take those pictures and not be like laughed at. And it makes me automatically turn back towards society and say like, what do we actually value? Um, is it just aesthetics? Um, but I think that's why I kind of get sensitive when we start talking about health, because then the idea then says like, I just want you to be healthy and healthy just always feels like this kind of, you know, this kind of Catch all phrase that mm. doesn't actually mean what people uh, think it means. So mm. it's there, there really is no getting away from it, Kai. Mm.
5: Mm.
0: I, one of the things that's striking in your practice is, is you talk a lot about love and, and relationships and the ups and downs of dating. And I am very, this is a, such a gendered conversation in general, you know, um, and, and, and I'm so accustomed to, um, you know, as a gay man, hearing uh, people in my community talk about our bodies, I'm accustomed to a, a conversation about relationships with women in their bodies. I don't think we hear as much from men, um, uh, from cisgendered men, talking vulnerability about how they feel about their bodies. And I just put that to you: Is that
2: do you agree with that? I agree. We don't we don't hear about it much at all. Uh, and and honestly, I don't see myself reflected in society as you know as much in a very in a very specific way you know you you see fat black men being funny or uh in some cases <laughs> being strong you know what i mean but what you don't see them nearly as much is uh being sex symbols in a way that's not meant to be kind of like a punchline to a joke uh so it it just felt like something that i i thought was worth talking about Mostly from my perspective, but I don't feel like my perspective is the default perspective for fat folks generally because I think all of us can draw from each other's stories and experiences when it comes to like culturally trying to live life in especially in American society.
0: Let's go to Lydia in Chicago. Lydia, welcome to the show.
5: Hi. Um I guess my question was like what is the perspective of treating eating disorders in a world where these types of drugs are starting Mm -hmm. to become increasingly, increasingly more, uh, popular. Like as someone who is bulimic, but not obese, um, but has family members who have been going on, um, ozempic and things that have lost like, I don't know, 20, 30 pounds, but you are still, you know, bulimic and don't qualify because you're not that heavy yet so like do you gain 15 pounds so you can lose 40 or do you Mm. try to do it the right way and be healthy so to speak but then you know your family members who were initially a lot more unhealthy than you take this drug and you know somehow are perceived to be magically healthier even though like the doctor mentioned it's not equating to health per se Mm
0: -hmm. so I want to put this to to both of you. Um, And so first, just on the question of these drugs and people with eating disorders, um, Dr. Stanford, what is the top line that you, you want people to understand about them?
4: Well, first of all, you know, in terms of these medications that you surely should be in a comprehensive multidisciplinary center. So in our center, we have obesity psychologists. We have five full-time PhD level psychologists. We have five bariatric surgeons, we have seven dietitians, and we have 13 obesity medicine physicians. So you would be seen by one of these team members and have a full team of, of, of individuals. So if we don't feel as though you're appropriate for medications, then you might not be appropriate. And so Lydia, to answer your question, it sounds like several of these persons in your family might not be appropriate for these medications. Um, doesn't mean that they're not appropriate for some type of treatment of some sort, but medications may not be the appropriate tool, particularly not medications within this um, treatment category. That's my thought process um, for, for this particular question. And... Ronald,
0: just in general with, I I don't know how much they come up on your podcast, but in your conversations about eating disorders, how how do you process, um, or just, I guess, how would you react to what Lydia is saying in terms of um, the conversation about obesity and disease and how it connects to the conversation about eating disorders?
2: I mean, I don't think we talk enough about... Uh, uh, and, and I think it's probably because, again, we're looking at fat folks, and when we think about eating disorders, our, our thought of what an eating disorder is is automatically typically linked to anorexia or to binge eating disorder. It's always like kind of the extremes. And a lot of that has to do with like us evaluating person on what they look like. And it's unfortunate because I feel like because we are kind of... Uh, framing it around what we see and what kind of the stereotypes are around eating disorders, people that actually have them that have gone through it, all of that, that have sought treatment come out the other end, I feel like they're probably having the toughest fight right now fighting all the stereotypes that come with eating disorders than it does actual, the actual treatment of eating disorders. So I, I don't know. I... I wish I had like a a better answer. I still think it's something societally that we kind of have to examine ourselves and saying like, what, what does any of this mean? What does it mean for a person to be very, very thin? What does it mean for a person to be very, very fat? And what are we actually grappling with when we think that a person should be one or the other?
0: Let's go to Laurel in Minneapolis. Laurel, welcome to the show.
3: Hi, thanks for taking my call. I'm a medical student at the University of Minnesota. Um, And there's a lot of us coming up in the medical field who feel differently about thinking of weight as a disease from scientific reasons, but also from ethical reasons. Earlier, Kai, I heard you say something about eliminating, eliminating obesity, and then you caught yourself and you said eliminating obesity as a disease. And I think that points to a lot of the ethical concerns that a lot of us have about the way that we think about weight as a disease, because it really feels to people like we're trying to eliminate That people in general when we talk about obesity as if it is a disease instead of just one of many spectrums that people exist on. And so I think a lot of us are really pushing to start to stop pathologizing weight and really just trying to start thinking of it as something that affects people's health like any other form of oppression might.
0: Thank you for that, Laurel. And Dr. Stanford, we talked about this a little bit already, but I just want to, setting aside, I want to ask you as a physician who who is working in this space, setting aside the science questions of it, if that's possible. I, I realize that maybe that's ridiculous. But um, in how it's discussed, is this a language issue? Is this a, you know, how um, you as a physician can talk to people about disease, mm-hmm. um, without implying that people's body size is the problem.
4: Yeah, so I, I don't think that we're doing that. So I have patients that are three hundred and fifty p- pounds that are that have obesity, but their size isn't the problem. They they still have the disease, but they are healthy still at their size. So I'm going to talk about my one of my absolute. Um, Most, I guess, transformative patients that I've ever had in my career. And that's my train conductor patient, the patient that really transformed my career when I first came to Boston. And when I first came to Boston, I lived on the North Shore of Boston and used to have to take the commuter rail into downtown Boston. This gentleman was a gentleman that had significant size. I'll tell you what his size is when we get to that point. Um, But this was indeed a patient that I wanted to have. I could see him laboring up and down the train as he went to take the tickets on his, as I came into downtown Boston on my way into work as a first year obesity medicine fellow. Um, But I couldn't, you know, say to them, Hey, I'd love for you to become my patient, but I want you to fast forward about three to four years into the future, which of course is now several years in the past. And I walk into my office one day and I exclaim, Oh my gosh, you're the train conductor. When I went to evaluate him on the first day, he was 550 pounds Um, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so so excited to see you. He's like looking at me. He has no idea who I am because to him, I was just one of the people smushed against the train wall, um, taking my ticket every day. And I was just so excited. I was like, oh, I'm so glad to take care of you. Um, There was a woman that was sitting there who started to cry. This woman who was here with this middle-aged man who was there started to cry. This was his mom that had come to him with, to his visit to explain to me how he had been doing all of this work, always been working for his whole life, had struggled with his weight, but she didn't have to tell me any of that because I had watched this for all of the time I'd been taking the train into downtown Boston. But for his whole life, she had been trying to convince doctors that he indeed mattered, but nobody ever cared because he was a man of significant size. When he first started as my patient, I told you he was 550 pounds, but now it over a little over 300 pounds, he no longer has high blood pressure, he no longer has sleep apnea, he no longer has prediabetes, he no longer has fatty liver disease, he is healthy at a weight just over 300 pounds. I say all that to say to you that I am not trying to get him to a weight below where he is. He is not being pathologized at his current weight, his weight is happy and healthy where he is. So he can coexist in my clinic at a happy, healthy weight where he is, where his numbers are indeed at harmony with his body type. And that's where we can have this conversation in a way that harmonizes with the work that I do in science and one that harmonizes with the health that he needs to be.
2: Ronald, can I, can is I, it? I, say, can I yeah, say one please. thing? I, I appreciate you doc for everything that you said and the way that you approach that i think what i have issue with is that you are one doctor and you have you have your your practice and i think it's important i think it's important the way you said everything you said it and i think it's important what you're doing but i'm saying like a lot of us that are dealing with doctors generally are Don't not dealing me. <laughs> That's exactly what my point is. Yes, we I don't agree with what I I more of me.
4: Dr. Stanford, let me let, let this, me
0: let let, this, let, let yes. me let Ronald finish, please. Go ahead,
4: Ronald. Yes.
2: Well, I was gonna <laughs> say is is if if more of them and I, I encourage y'all to listen to episode three of Wait for It. It's called Wait, Don't Tell Me. And I have an interaction with a doctor on that episode, in which I walk into the room having already lost like 29 pounds and ready to tell my doctor, "Hey, this is what I'm doing." And listening to him kind of go into this kind of blackout mode of just saying like, "Hey, well, you need to be on the treadmill, you need to be doing this, you got to do cardio, you got to eat right." And I'm like, "Doc, I'm already doing all that and I'm losing weight." Then it turns into, "Well, you don't want to lose weight too fast." Like, you don't want to lose it too fast. I'm like, "Well, if I do everything that you're telling me to do, I'm probably going to lose at a high rate anyway. I don't I don't understand." And so I feel like most of the interactions that we're having with medical professionals are not what you just described. You just described something that blew my mind, Doc. Like you just described <laughs> something that blew my mind.
0: Mm.
4: Well, Ron, so I when I agree with you. And this is part of why I do what I do. It's because I believe that we as docs, and it's not just as docs, it's nurses, it's exercise physiologists, and the list goes on in healthcare. We are taught one thing. We are taught to believe that BMI is the end all be all. And we ascribe that to one's health. And I don't agree with that. And that's what set up this negative dynamic that's created the this really unfortunate conversation that makes it such that you, not you individually, but most don't want to come in to see us.
0: Also me and individually, but yes. <laughs> also, right? also Ronald individually. We, 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 we are at the very end here of a conversation that could go on for uh, centuries. 32nd uh, Siege. Ronald, where do you want to leave people um, uh, in in this moment as they think about all the the cultural conversation around Ozempic?
2: I mean, I think my biggest fear, and and I think Doc can speak to this, is that a conversation that has been for the longest time, people looking me earnestly in the eyes and say, "I'm just concerned about your weight." are now going to look at me when I don't want to take a GLP-1 drug and say, don't you care about your weight? Mm -hmm. And I feel like I really want us to be in a place where we're battling even further upstream and starting to have conversations about food regulation and what actually is going in and what's addictive and what's not and all of the ways in which uh, there's other paths to obesity beyond just uh, what's going on in our brains. And I think the GLP-1 drugs are addressing one thing what else can we address to actually, if this is a disease that we need to get, get down, which I have my own qualms about calling it a disease, but I understand. And I know that was over 30 seconds. I'm sorry.
0: It's okay. We are going to have to leave it there, though. Ronald Young Jr. is host of the podcast. Wait for it. Dr. Fatima Cody Stanford, and I'm going to get your name right on one of these chances. Dr. Cody Stanford is an obesity medicine physician and an associate professor of medicine and pediatrics at Massachusetts General Hospital. Thanks to you both. Thanks to everybody who called in. You can keep talking to us. Just go to notesfromamerica.org. Look for the button to record a voice note right there. This week's show was produced by Suzanne Gabber and Felice Leon. Music by Jared Paul. Matthew Miranda was our live engineer. We are a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Kai Wright. Thanks for spending time with us.